Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Sherry Monahan on the show. Sherry is a culinary historian who's written a wide variety of books, including works on historical recipes, the history of madams and brothels in California, an elegiac book on Pike's Peak, the history of wine of California, and more. This was such a fun conversation and is chocked full of fun food discussion leading up to your Thanksgiving. Please enjoy your holiday and our conversation. Let's start by uh, kind of setting the stage here. You've written more traditional history books, and then you've also written culinary books as well. How does your mind work differently when you're writing in these two mediums or genres? You know, I, I started, my first book was a combination of both. It was, it was called Taste of Tombstone, and it was the first half of the book was all about the history of Tombstone around the hospitality industry, you know, hotels, restaurants, ice cream parlors, that kind of thing. And then the back half of the book were recipes, you know, based on what those businesses advertised or sold. And that sort of like set the tone for that. And then I went over and I did the California or not California. I did the Wicked West. And that was just total story and history, no recipes. So, you know, it's more lately, I've just been doing more of the food and history. So when I transitioned quite a few years ago now from the food book, just to total history, it was almost kind of like a, oh, but don't I need a recipe for this? Or don't I need a recipe? No, 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 you don't need a recipe for that. But somehow I still managed to put in a drink recipe or an instruction on how to deal Pharaoh or to play Monty. So I guess, you know, I sort of, for me, when I want to write about history and share that with people, I want them to be able to experience it somehow. So I guess my mind is always in the, how does the reader experience what I'm writing? You know, can they go and go to a place and experience history? Can they play a card game by me giving them instructions or creating a drink or a recipe? So, you know, my mind is always spinning on the experience. So the research, only just the research is a little bit different as far as how I digest what I'm going to write and how I share that, if that makes any sense. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. And I often talk with uh, people about how they approach history and challenge them to think differently about what they choose to read. Many people, you know, you go, you know, for a holiday or a birthday, you'll buy your dad or someone like a like a long narrative history of World War II that's just kind of this, you know, march through facts and dates and maps and things. And mm -hmm. I think that's all well and good and that has a place. But oftentimes I find that I can really understand a place and a time better by going through the side door of art, mm -hmm. of culture, of food. And I think while many people might believe that they're missing something by just focusing on one thematic area to understand the historical period. I disagree. I think, you know, you need to see it from a lot of different lenses. Mm -hmm. um, and which is kind of leads me to my next question. What can we learn about historical people by learning about what they ate and what they cooked? Well, for me, you know, I have always been interested in, you know, what people eat and what they drink, no matter where they're from. You know, when I go on vacation, I don't go to a souvenir store and buy trinkets, I go to the grocery store or to a local market and I buy honey or jam or hot sauce. And so for me to be able to understand what people ate, whether it be in a different country or on the frontier and the time period that they ate, 
I mean, it just gives you, I feel like it gives you a connection to that particular person or people or culture. Um, you know, what we eat today is hardly anything like what people ate back then. And so if you can kind of put yourself in their time period with their food or their beverage, I think it sort of transcends you a little bit back into that particular time period and what those people might have experienced. Yeah, absolutely. So there's something that I think underlies a lot of your books. And now having read a few of them, I can kind of probe some through lines here. One idea that maybe is <laughs> maybe controversial in some quarters is that there is a distinct American cuisine. And then there's also a distinct mm -hmm. Western cuisine. How would you define those respective cuisines based on your life of work in the culinary world? You know, it's it's interesting because when I first started doing my research for Taste of Tombstone, I I had this Hollywood image, I guess you would say, of of what food on the frontier was like. And I envisioned the chuck wagon, you know, beans, chili, biscuits. And so imagine my surprise when I started doing my research and found out that people in Tombstone, Arizona, of all places, are eating French, trendy French food and seafood. And I, I just sort of paused and I went, this doesn't feel right, right? Because your image of what Hollywood tells you you should be looking at isn't there. And then the more you go into research history, you realize that in the late 1800s, 1890s, maybe, you know, up to 1900-ish, the big trend in, in the world is classic French food. It was the most popular thing that people ate all around the country. Over in Europe, it was very trendy. And so, of course, people back here, being at the Victorian era, people wanted to be trendy, just like we do today. And so, you know, when you think about Western food, that was my thought of what the cowboys ate. And the cowboys did eat that way when they were on the trail. But when they got into their, their final destination, like Abilene or Dodge City, after they were done driving the cattle for several months, they were eating classic French food at these restaurants. And so when I think of Western food, I think of it today as, you know, Southwest cuisine and the, and the different ethnic, you know, influences that have come on. And so when you look at the food from the time period in the 1800s, is it's what was trendy all over. And so people out West, when they left, and I always say this, that people often think about the Victorian era and the Western expansion happening as two different events. They happen literally along the same time period from 1850 to 1900, 1901, when Queen Victoria died. And so when you, you put those two together, you have Victorians going West and they didn't drop all of their, their Victorian values, their foods and their clothing trends and their meeting trends and their, their tea trends. They kept them going even when they crossed the Mississippi and the Missouri River. So, you know, Western food to me is more when I think of today, Western food was just plain American food, as you started off by asking me. And then as you get to the 1890s, you start to see more people who are blending cultures who are now living side by side with some of the people from Mexico who have who have lived there, who've worked there. They're introducing their cuisine. They have their own little restaurants in places like Tucson and some places in California and Nevada. And then you have the the immigrants from the Pyrenees, which is near the Spain French border. And you have the in northern Nevada, the sheep herders, you have the Pyrenees who have the Basque cuisine. So by the 1890s, the stigma of, oh, well, it's not proper food if it's if it's ethnic is starting to change. And by the 1890s, early 1900s, you start to see menus or bills of fare, as they were called, morphing and showing and featuring more of these ethnic meals. 
And I, one of the terms that we use a lot on the show is transnational, you know, meaning things extending beyond boundaries. And I think a lot of food in the West would be in that genre. I mean, if you think about Tex-Mex, that's transnational mm-hmm. food. It's, it's, it's not, it's irrespective of artificial lines that we draw and it's just a mixture of the kinds of things that exist in space and time that are outside of our arbitrary distinctions. I, I do want to ask you something about recipes. You know, there's my listeners will know that I'm a, a classical music nerd, and there was a there is a kind of a movement in the classical music world where you try to recreate the instruments and the environment in which you know, a composer from hundreds of years ago, what the music would have sounded like, you know, what what a symphony might have sounded like that Mozart is directing as opposed to what it sounds like when we try and recreate it now. So using historical instruments, using, you know, different pitches that maybe were more common in the music then. And I guess my question is, is there something we get by looking at older recipes that we learn about that time period? And is is there some utility there in using older recipes or do you find yourself wanting to update them to meet kind of modern standards of how, how we cook? You know, I, I try to, when I'm looking at an old recipe and I'm trying to write the instructions for it, because, you know, back then it was like, you know, a handful of butter or butter the size of an egg, bake in a hot oven because they didn't have regulators. You know, it was, you know, now we know exactly precisely it's 425 degrees. Back then it was a, a, a wood burning or a coal burning stove and you had to regulate it just by touch and feel and experience. And so, you know, there, there's things like that, that I, I'm, and I often say in some of my write-ups is like, you know, I'm sure the pioneers would be jealous, if not envious of the modern technologies that we have today that would have made their lives much easier. But at the same time, if I change too much, then I am no longer offering a snippet of history that people can recreate and experience that history. So oftentimes if a recipe calls for lard, I will either say, you know, you know, lard, shortening or butter. I, I've really gotten away from shortening because it's just so bad for you. So I will either say lard or butter, depending on what's appropriate. And then, you know, you can use your own judgment, but that way people would know that that was the original ingredient. And oftentimes, you know, I, there's so many things that are different today, like flour. I, I just did a, an article. I write for True West magazine and I've written for them for 14 years. I have a column called Frontier Fair. And every month I pick a different topic. And I just did one on, I think it was uh, Kansas and their, their flour mills and flour and, and even corn. And so there are things called heritage flowers or heritage wheat heirloom flour, heirloom corn. And anytime you get those, those are coming back into our world, especially after COVID, everybody was getting back to basics and canning and gardening and wonderful things that made us, you know, self-sustaining. And so when you can, I write about those in my column and, and tell people how they can get them. So when they're baking a recipe, you can sort of like you with an old instrument, you know, use a type of flour that are, that the pioneers were using that we don't use today. So the texture is going to be a little bit different. The smell is going to be different. The flower, you know, just everything is going to act differently. But I try to stay as true as I can to the original without making it so much of a challenge that people are going to look at the recipe and go, I'm not making that. I don't have time. You know, we have to balance between encouraging people to experiment versus just looking at a list of ingredients and instructions and just put their hands up. I do that when I'm looking at modern recipes. So imagine looking at it from an old recipe. But again, it, it, it allows you to look at the recipe ingredients for things back then and what was available. Okay. Today we have imports 
from everywhere. Fresh fruit is always in season. Fresh vegetables are always in season. They would cook seasonally. And it was a big deal when they got an import in from China or, or from somewhere exotic that they would get the ingredients from. And so today it's, it's so much easier to just have everything. And so I think you kind of have an appreciation for what the pioneers went through and how they managed to prepare such fabulous dishes with having to cook regional and seasonal. Absolutely. We're going to transition now to talking about one of your books uh, that I enjoyed in particular, California Wines and Vines. I've got a couple questions about this, both on the pioneer side, but also kind of regionally. I really enjoyed reading the different vignettes of some of these people whose names we kind of associate mm-hmm. with labels, mm-hmm. Krug, Mondavi, and to see how kind of improvised a lot of the things are, you know, that are now staples. <laughs> Let's start with Charles Krug. Uh, can you share about how he influenced the development of Napa Valley? Well, you know, he was he was just an innovator. You know, he believed in 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 the the region and he just he was, you know, he had fascinating techniques that he used and he just became this this icon really on on his influences and gosh, it's so hard to describe because, you know, he really really did so much for the area. I mean, what were your what was your thought on what influenced him? I mean, well, I mean, it's 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 hard to kind of reconceptualize what it would be like to start from scratch, you know, and, I, <laughs> right. and that's that's what I came, you know, uh, when you read a lot of history about you know how things start, it's hard to to like pull apart your understanding of the valley and see a lot of the decisions that were made and aspects of the valley just being kind of coincidental. <laughs> but then you see these people that have this kind of drive and vision. And that's what I wondered about when I was reading is, is what was directing him. You know, I think it was just his passion. You know, I mean, he, he loved the area, he loved wine. And I felt like, you know, there's a lot of pioneers that settled all over the West, including, you know, the wine country. California, especially after the gold rush, you know, people had to figure out what they were going to do in life once they were there and, and they got the gold and then they had nothing else to do. And so, you know, when you, you think about this is going to be my home, right? I'm not going back. And, And so what do you do? And, and he said, you know, when I first visited Napa County, I found less than a dozen small vineyards a so-called mission vines, which were the original vines from the, the Franciscan missionaries. And so, you know, he made uh, his first batch of wine and he just realized that this is going to be a wonderful place for me. I like the area. I'm an early starter. You know, he's one of the first there. And I think he just loved the place. I want to jump to, to bigger patterns, though. What in writing the book, did you notice that there were certain patterns or differences between the development of Sonoma County and the development of Napa Valley? You know, I think, and and it kind of speaks to today is, you know, Sonoma was more, I think, more laid back, you know, and people were just enjoying their wine on a smaller scale, more about family and creating a small community where Napa, I think, fairly soon on with people like Krug and others found that this was going to be a great place to grow wine and have a wine country. And I think they realized that that was more industrial, not industrial, it's not a right word, but more advantageous. And it was going to take off. They knew that. They knew they had something really good. I think Sonoma did too. But again, Sonoma was just more, a few more laid back people, not necessarily wanting to go full on scale, you know, mass production just quite yet. 
And I think you kind of still see that today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, you know, visit those two parts of California, Mm -hmm. there is a distinct cultural difference. And it was fun to read in your book that that cultural difference goes all the way back to their genesis. (laughs) Right. And can you talk a little bit about how prohibition affected the wine industry in California? It's really interesting. When I was out there doing research for the book, some of the the stories that are in the book were were shared by some of the owners and caretakers of the vineyards. And of course, it, you know, it, it, brought it to a halt like it did any other kind of alcohol production. Um, and it was it was so sad because they were, I forget where it was, they had to dump all of their wine. I think it was uh, the Fapiano, where they've talked about how they had to cut open all the barrels and they just poured it into the river. And it looked like they said that it looked like the river had bled to death because of all of the red wine that was flowing in the river. Look, they said it looked like blood. And, but it was interesting because, you know, you can't keep a good, good man down or a good woman down, whatever you want to say, is that there's always a workaround, right? So they were very creative in the fact that they weren't allowed to sell wine on a production level, but people could, under prohibition, people could make a certain amount of wine for home use, possibly depending on what, where you were and what states and all that good stuff. So what California did is they still made grape juice and they sent you out a little yeast packet that said, if you put this in your, your grape juice, it will help preserve it. But if you leave it in too long, it might ferment. <laughs> wink, wink, nod, nod. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then there, well, were, and there were other wineries that, you know, they ended up making some elixirs and tinctures. They, they sold other things and, and some of them stayed on. Like in, that, in the book, California Vines, Wines and Pioneers, there's over 60 wineries that are, are in the book that all are historical in one way or another. Either they... They survived prohibition through whatever means it was. They are now an old winery, you know, being operated by somebody new. And so that just goes to show you that while there were lots of them that failed for various reasons, at least 60 of them that were in my book made it through somehow. Hmm. The other obstacle to wine in California was a word that I'm going to try to pronounce. I think Phylloxera. it's phylloxera. <laughs> there we go. So what is that and how, and how did it affect the wine industry? It is a, a disease, obviously, that, that kills grapes in the grapevines. And it was originally thought that it was brought over from Europe. But what happened was it was actually in California, the first big one. And California actually infected Europe. And I don't remember the exact details, but it can devastate a vineyard. And it does it quickly. And so you have to replant. And then they started figuring out that there were better types of vines and grapes that you could plant to sort of head it off. But it's, you know, still a concern today that it can damage anything, any anybody's vineyards. But they're smarter about it today. And so you don't hear about it quite as often. Yeah, I honestly, in reading your book, it was the first that I'd heard about it. And I which is going to lead in my next question. I was uh, like Credence Clearwater revival said I was stuck in Lodi for a year. And so got to, you know, learn about the wine industry, but I didn't hear that particular disease described. But what I did hear about in Lodi quite a bit was old vines mm-hmm. and some of these old Zen vines that they had growing at like Jesse's Grove, which I believe you mentioned in the book. What do you think is this fascination with old vines in California? Well, you know, it's interesting because one of my my favorite wines is an old vines in and usually from Lodi, although there's plenty of other good ones, either that or Petit Syrah, those are my go-to reds. And, you know, the vines, the 
supposedly they're, they, they have less grapes, you know, the older they are, the less they produce, but it's the, there's something special about the old vine that gives you a better tasting grape. And then, you know, some are very old, some are combined with older rootstock and newer rootstock. So, and, and, you know, some, I think there was one at the, oh gosh, it's up in Lake County. I'm drawing a blank on the name. It was owned by Lily Langtree. <laughs> you think I would remember it. Gwinnock. They have some very, very old vines that date back almost to when she was there in the 80s, 1890s, I think. And they're these old gnar vines. And then, then they have the, the root. It's just big and ugly and make a you know decoration somewhere. And then the grapes that are coming off of it and the grape leaves are just so tiny and small. And I think it's just, you know, people like being, you know, you, you hear old vine. It's got to be better because it's old, right? Yeah. And that's what I assumed too, was like, oh, it's old. So it's the best. And, you know, there were some that I really liked uh, some, mm -hmm. some of the old vines, you know, I know that people in this industry hate that word jammy, uh, but then they use it. So I don't know whether <laughs> they hate it or not. Um, some of them would be a little jammy for my taste. Um, but it was always mm -hmm. an intriguing, intriguing stories that I'd heard, you know, just about 115 year old, vine that's still producing and just thinking about mm -hmm. all the different hands that pulled grapes from that is, is is something in and of itself whether you like the wine or not that is um, true I never I never really thought about it that way but you're right I mean you think about I think about it in terms of like restaurants and old businesses like how many people have eaten in this place and how many people have walked through this door but I've never really thought about how many people have tended that vineyard, you know, how many hands and how many people have gone out there and, you know, trimmed and cut and, and harvested. And uh, so I like that. We're going to make a hard right now and talk about <laughs> California Madams, another book of yours that I enjoyed. Uh, what drew you, what drew your attention to writing about Madams? You know, I honestly, I had a publisher who came to me and said that they wanted to do a series of Madams books. And I had written about um, a couple of them, I, I believe, in one of my other books, I mentioned them and they asked me to write about it. So I really wasn't super interested in about them, although any part of, you know, American uh, frontier Western history I'm interested in. Uh, but when they asked me to do it and I started doing the research, I was I was fascinated. So it was really it was the publisher asking me, but it was not a book that that I regret doing at all because I learned so much. What were some of the factors that you noticed that drew women West and then to this specific line of work? You know, I always said there were like three different, three different types of women, I guess is the easiest way to say it is that, you know, women, and this is just in general, but women who went West usually went with their husbands or they went out to, as a mail order bride, they went out to be with family that had, because they'd lost their family here. So women went West for a variety of reasons. And often sometimes, you know, to hide from their past, why women became you know involved in prostitution. That's when I say, I think in my mind, there's three different types. There's one where there is the woman who is down on her luck for whatever reason, lost a husband, is it from an abusive relationship, whether it be a father or a brother or a husband, they run away and they have no option. They have little self-worth and they become a prostitute. You have others who come over from Europe and they get off the boats, whether it be in New York or California, and they are wide eyed and they have this wonderful dream that they're going to have a wonderful life in America. And then they meet up with what they were called Marcia Rose or basically 
not pimps, but they were men mostly, but some women who would, who would look for these innocent eyed girls and they would offer them free passage to California and they needed a maid or a housekeeper or a ladies woman. And you would only have to work for two years and then you would be able to do whatever you want. You didn't have to pay them back. And these girls were so gullible and they were like, and half of them didn't speak. Most of them didn't speak English. Oh yes, 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 yes. I'd like that. And, and then you had the madams themselves who often had been prostitutes, but then the madams looked at it as a business and they realized how much money could be made in the sex trade industry, like even today. And they went, you know what? I can do this for like five years. They always had a business plan. They knew how long they had to be a madam. Most of the time they did not take clients, although they, they took certain clients who they, 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 they liked or wanted to be with. But most of the time they just cared for their girls. Some of them took extremely good care of their girls and then others didn't, but I'm getting off track now, but that's, that's sort of the reason why people would get into prostitution and why they went West. Can you discuss some of the complicated relationships that they had, madams, with police officers? I'm thinking about the story of Margaret Apple in particular, but just generally, how did law enforcement work with these institutions, if you will? Well, most of the time they had, I guess you what would call a forced relationship because the madams needed to have the police officers look the other way because oftentimes they were breaking the law in one way or the other by selling illegal booze or, you know, fleecing customers or, you know, for a variety of reasons. So they wanted the cops to look the other way. So they often would trade their girls out for services. Sometimes they would pay a fee on top of that, or sometimes they would just pay a fee. Other times women would become so blatant. I'm forgetting the one, there's a woman in the book and I can't remember her name right now to save my life from what county she was in, but she refused to play, get play ball with the cops. And she just like, no, this is my business. You're not going to take anything from me. And they would just harass her day and night, which made her life really difficult. So, you know, the police were well aware of what was happening. And, and a lot of times they were their clients for, you know, trade for services. Let's, this is kind of a two-part question because I want to talk about class and race. So there's some anecdotes and vignettes that talk about the role that class p- played. I'm thinking about Hattie Wells in particular, Haiti or Hattie. Mm. And then I'm mm-hmm. thinking about, I think it's a toy. I think that's the oh, yeah. way you would say it. A um, toy, yep. Yeah. In, Great name for a prostitute, right? <laughs> uh-huh. And then in the sta- in that particular establishment in Chinatown in San Francisco. So can you talk about the role that class and then race played in these establishments? When you say as, as how it did. So like in, in, in particular types with of customers. Or? Yeah. So in particular, the Hattie Wells case, she designed the establishment to appeal okay. to a certain class of individual. And so it almost seemed like it was a strategic marketing plan on her part. Correct. And, and that was, like I said earlier, most madams were businesswomen and they had a plan and they had target markets, had target markets, meaning clients and also where they were going to be. Hattie Wells um, had her establishment in San Francisco, but she often took her girls to popular mining towns like in Prescott, Arizona. Um, and so not only did she have an establishment in town, but she also took her girls on the road for a road show. Basically, um, a lot of a lot of madams um, would go to the mining circuit or the cow towns, um, although normally mining circuit cow towns, you know, those women had their own establishments and, you know, you didn't want the competition coming in. And so, yes, they would want certain clientele. 
you know, Lee Francis was another one in, in San Francisco, first as a prostitute and then down in Beverly Hills. And she would only accept certain clientele. She actually catered to Hollywood in the uh, 19 teens, 20s and 30s. And so, again, she wanted high end customers. But, you know, just because somebody comes from high society and has money doesn't mean that they're a dirty, rotten scumbag. You know, there were a couple of Hollywood celebrities who I won't name. You have to read the book to find out, but who were quite abusive to the girls and, and to some of the men. There were also, you know, male prostitutes, some of these madams arranged. So yes, they had a plan. There were other madams who could care less about their girls, treated them with, with no respect and let any Tom, Dick or Harry, you know, come in and abuse them, do what they want, beat them. And they didn't really care as long as they got their, their take of the money. And then you have somebody like Ah Toy, you know, Chinese, obviously, you know, in a different section of Chinatown or in, in San Francisco in Chinatown, and she, of course, you know, she came off as innocent, but she also had a plan as well. She had been around. She saw what happened. And so her clients, when they wanted something exotic, I guess is the best word to say, you know, she would cater to to white men as well, Chinamen as well. But I mean, she saw that there was money for the white man who the white man, white businessmen or affluent businessmen. I should say, who who wanted something exotic is is the best way that the, it was said. Before we close with book recommendations, I want to do a couple uh, quick miscellaneous questions that I had for you based on your very prolific writing career. What are some of the differences between the whiskey I would get if I ordered at a bar today and then what I might be served at a saloon in the Old West? That would be quite a difference. You know, today, everything is so regulated and there are so many options for customers that you can set a high expectation of what you want. You know, what, what do you consider good quality? What is a good product? What do you like? What is your taste profile? Back in the American frontier, you know, you were basically supply and demand, especially if you're in a smaller, you know, rural community. Now, if you're in a place like San Francisco or Denver or even Tombstone, you definitely had your option and choices because you had more business people, you had more imports, you had the train bringing in stuff from all over the country. And even in, in Europe, I mean, European, you know, beer and spirits and liquor were very popular here at the, at the time. So if you went to a bar today, you, you could get a long list of, you know, something costing as little as, you know, $7 a shot to $1,000 a shot, depending on where you're sitting and what you're asking for. Back in the day, you would go into your average saloon, put down, you know, 25 cents and you would get a shot of basic whiskey. In, in some places, you know, I, I talk about rot gut. I'm sure people have heard that term. And, and it literally comes from thing, the, the alcohol that you were consuming, aka whiskey, would literally rot your stomach because it was often made with kerosene if people didn't have moonshine. And, and rot gut was nothing more than honest rot gut was moonshine, plug tobacco juice and burnt sugar to make it sort of give you that burn, that color, that flavor, that look. So it can be very questionable about what you were getting. And then finally, they came along with the Bond and Bottle, Bottle and Bond Act, and it was starting to regulate whiskey more in the 1880s. And so it was a little less dicey, but yeah, difference on what you get today versus back then. Okay. Next question. We have amazing mountains in California. I've hiked quite a few of them, but why should I travel to Colorado to visit Pikes Peak? Well, you know what? Every mountain is different. And Pikes Peak is is an amazing place to go. They used to have car races down the down Pikes Peak. My great uncle used to race cars up there back in the 19 teens and 20s. You know, it its history goes back, you know, to Zebulon Pike who was 
one of the pioneers who was out surveying and traveling when Meriwether Lewis and Clark were out, you know, doing their passage. And so it's really significantly historically important, you know, to our country. Um, the views are phenomenal. The climate will be different. Uh, it's 14,110 feet, if I, if I remember correctly. I don't know what the elevation in California is. There's also, you know, it's not just Pikes Peak, but Colorado Springs. There's so many beautiful natural phenomenon that, that is there, the Garden of the Gods. It, it's just a beautiful place to go. Last question. What are some of your favorite Western films? Oh, my. Well, I'd have to rank Tombstone. <laughs> and I like Tombstone only because they do a really good job of the costuming and the sets and, and being mostly accurate to history. Most of the storyline is correct. There are some things that I would change for sure. I do like that. I'm trying to think of some of my other favorite Westerns. You know, I, I enjoyed Lonesome Dove. That was a good one. I'm just trying to think what I have seen. I, you know, I always freeze when I get this question. Do you think I would know better? <laughs> well, there's there's a lot of them. And, you know, I I don't know if they're... Are being if they're being produced at the rate that they once were. So it's almost in kind of my mind, a genre that's going away in some ways. There's still occasionally yeah, yes. some Westerns that pop up, you know, like probably the one, you know, one of my favorite Westerns is is the adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men. I, I see that as a Western. Sure. You know, Deadwood is high up there for me, both oh, the yeah. series and the movie. But yeah, I don't I don't know if they're being produced at the same rate. And there could be political reasons for that or cultural reasons for that. But it, it is kind of a genre that I think is going away. But it is a genre that's really important for understanding the way, you know, people see America and the way America sees itself. Well, and, and how America grew. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, of growth in the West that affected the, you know, America in general. So much, you know, happened out west, and and you are right. And you know, I'm part of some, you know, right Western writers organizations, and we often talk about how, you know, the Western was once so iconic and so popular, and then around the 1950s, 60s, you start to see other more modern things come out, like you have rock and roll, and the music is changing, and then you start to see cars, you know, high speed car chases, and then you have action detective stuff going on. And so when you think about all this action that's happening, and then you look at the Western, there's a dude on a horse plunking along, right? I mean, there's gunfights and, and there's, there's, you know, cowboys and Indian chases and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, everybody, you know, we all have, have a need for speed, you know, whether it's on the computer or watching TV or driving. And so I think, I think that sort of just, you know, is a way of, of why things changed. And, but I agree with you, there's, there's so much out there that has not been told on, on television and on screen. You know, I've done a few shows for the History Channel and, and we talk about, you know, real history. And, and so you're right. I mean, I think Yellowstone is a great modern Western series. I, I enjoy that. And that's super popular. And I think that just the Western has gotten a, a bad stigma, you know, over the last 40 years. And so if there's a way to get around that and come back to that, you know, that would be awesome. So we'll close with my favorite section, which is book recommendations. What are two or three books you'd recommend to listeners? Well, that's that's so hard because it's such a wide open experience, you know. Recommend as many as you like. Uh, you know, I I love it for you want fiction or nonfiction or just whatever. Yeah, whatever interests you. Okay, I will. I love Tony Hillerman. He wrote a, a, a huge series of about set in the 
New Mexico area, a Bible police, which I absolutely, that was my first Western I ever read. You know, I mean, that's really good. Oh, gosh, there's so many. Oh, you're, you're Craig Johnson. You know, he writes the Longmire series, which I really enjoyed that series. That was a good, you know, TV Western or, you know, Netflix kind of Western thing. He writes some really good books. I'm just trying to think who else. I mean, I've got a ton of Western friends and they're all going to yell at me once they hear this podcast. And I don't Yeah, maybe some, that. maybe some that are underrated because I've, I've certainly heard of Craig Johnson and watched okay. the adaptation. Maybe some that are a little less known as well. You know, I have a, a really good friend named Chris Entz. She's in California. She writes about women. She's written over 40 books about women on the frontier and a few others. But I mean, you know, if you just want a, a light, you know, she she writes like I do. We write the same kind of book. It's not a, you know, in-depth tomb of any particular subject. We call it popular nonfiction, I guess, is the best way to describe it. And, and she just, you know, you want to know anything. She writes about doctors and teachers and, and that kind of thing. I'm trying to think of who else. You know, there was one book that I read by Linda Lay Schuler. It was called She Who Remembers. And it's about the native tribes early on on the American frontier here, which I found fascinating. If you want old school, you know, Willa Cather uh, was a, an early female writer who wrote about the American West. Yeah, I have a uh, Willa Cather. I'm looking at it on my bookshelf right now. Okay. I'm trying to- Oh, Pioneers? <laughs> I think it's, is it Myotonia, I think? Myotonia, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that was one that I really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, to, to wrap up, what's next for you? What are you working on these days? I, I have a new book coming out in October. And that is Signature Dishes of America. And it is historic recipes from hotels and restaurants across the country. And, and so basically the origins, origins of some of our favorite dishes, like the Cobb salad from California, the Brown Derby, you know, eggs, Benedict from Delmonico's, bananas foster from, oh, Lordy, in New Orleans. I can't remember the name. And so you can learn about, you know, some of the well-known dishes, their origins and their chefs. And then there's some other that are very unique to a particular location that you can try. And they've generously shared their recipes and a beautiful photography that comes out in October. I am working on another book that is, has a lot to do with Lake County, California, and it is called Victorian Recipes with a Side of Scandal. And it's about an English woman who went to Lake County in 1885 and didn't know, know nothing about housekeeping. She was a, a proper lady in England and lived a very scandalous life when she was in Lake County. And then she became an actress in New York for a while, went back to England, but she loved to, she ate. She wrote, wrote a book for about a year when she lived in California called How the Rich Went West. And she talked about food all the time. So this book is based on the food that she would have prepared and the recipes she made. So they're, you know, history, food, vignette book. Before we wrap up, can you give us one one of those signature American dishes that maybe has an interesting or strange origin? So the the one fun recipe is a recipe called Sister Lizzie's Shaker Sugar Pie. Try to say that fast a few times. It is available at the Golden Lamb Restaurant in Lebanon, Ohio. They have been serving food since 1803, and they have some interesting recipes called sauerkraut balls too. But there is a bit of a mystery about this Shaker Sugar Pie, how it originated some believe it was the Shaker community of West Union near the modern day town of Churubusca, Indiana in 1827. But there was a family that were frugal and they purchased some furnishings at the local yard sale and auctions in the area. At one auction, Ginny Jones, who was one of the owners, purchased an antique Shaker hutch that sits in the hotel lobby today. She found a secret drawer in the hutch, which held a recipe titled Sister Lizzie's Pie. 
she had the chef make that recipe, which he tasted and loved. And that happened on 928 holiday season. So they put it on their menu and guests have loved ever since. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you for talking with me today. Everyone should go visit your website. All of your books are listed there. It's uh, your website is sherrymonahan.com, correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Go there and then you can find all of her books. They're all equally fascinating. And if you love food, they're a great place to go to learn about the history of recipes, to learn some new recipes and some old ones as well. I've really enjoyed all of your work and I appreciate you coming on to talk to me. Thank you so much. And I hope everybody learned something and is encouraged to go cook. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. We'll see you next time.